Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors, or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. I am Vicki McKenna, News Talk 1310 WIBA. Got Jimmy in the studio today, ladies and gentlemen. Jimmy. Woohoo, Jimmy. James. Jimmy. Jimmy in the studio. So we've got a short show today. Jimmy is going to be taking over at 5 o'clock to, uh, to man the board on Badger basketball. Here's what's coming up on the program. A comprehensive look at bad advice from the Obama administration on school discipline. And when I say advice, I mean advice that came with the threat of civil rights lawsuits. This is the discipline, the disparate impact discipline policy that I've talked many, many times on the program about. We have a comprehensive study on it, on the impacts of that policy in Wisconsin on academics now. We know that chaos has reigned in the classroom. But I guess that's okay for progressives as long as they didn't have any information about whether or not it's disproportionately negatively affecting academics. Well, folks, it is. We'll get with Will Flanders from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty on that. Uh, lots of other stuff coming up in the program before we have to send you off to Badger Basketball at 5 o'clock. How about that word for the Grand in Your Hand contest? How about I give you the word so you have a chance to win? Here is your word for the hour. The word is Bills. B-I-L-L-S. If you text the word Bills, B-I-L-L-S, to the number 200-200, you have a chance to win $1,000 instantly in the Grand in Your Hand contest. Uh, Do remember, if you play the contest, you will receive a confirmation text from iHeartRadio. And additional texts from iHeartRadio, not many, just a couple, but do remember that standard data and message rates apply. However, you could win $1,000 if you text the word BILLS, B-I-L-L-S, to the number 200-200. Before we get... To the show, I've got to throw out love, and I don't know if this guy is one of my listeners in Milwaukee or from Madison. I think it's Jason Daniels, I should think. I think, I'm trying to remember correctly, Jason gave me the idea to use silicone caulk to solve my problem in my garage. Yesterday I was talking about how my garage was leaking like an artesian well. Um... I needed to divert water, not plug the hole. That's going to require a professional. I needed to simply divert the water away from the staircase that leads into my basement. 
My basement is below the garage level, and the basement entryway is right from the garage. The water was leaking into the basement and causing flooding in the basement. So I just needed to divert the water. And I think it was Jason. Thank you, Jason. You're the man who said, you know what you could do is you could run a really thick bead of caulk and divert the water using the caulk to your drain in your garage. Miracle of miracles. It worked. Less than four bucks for the tuba caulk. I laid that bead down. I sprayed it with Flex Seal. I also have to recommend Flex Seal, even though it's way overpriced. Sprayed the Flex Seal on the silicone caulk because it had, you know, it was wet concrete. So it wasn't going to stick unless I did something to seal it. Lo and behold, I was able to divert the water perfectly, perfectly to the drain in my garage. So I have to address the leak, but I couldn't do that last night. I just wanted to get the water in my basement. And it worked brilliantly. Brilliant. So thank you, Jason. I think it was Jason Daniels who offered this suggestion up either in my inbox or on Facebook. For some reason, I have his name associated. I've never met this person. I have this name associated with the solution, and I'm always thrilled when the solution to a problem that seemed to be one that was going to require a lot of money turned out to be a $4 tube of caulk and an $11 can of Flex Seal. And I've got some left over so I can use it on other things. Thank you for that idea. Sometimes the simplest thing is the best. I, I appreciate everybody who's trying to give me ideas on how to fix the leak. That's beyond my pay grade, people. Foundation joint leaks. No. No. No, 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 no. That's who you call the professionals for. It's why they're professionals. Because they're not going to screw it up. And I could just see myself screwing it up. So anyway, I do want to thank you, whoever or whoever you are. If it wasn't Jason, I'm sorry to give you credit. Uh, and if it's somebody else, email me and say, hey, Vicki, that was me. But you guys are awesome. And uh, I was going to take video of this, but we had um, <laughs> plug the hole with all the dead bees from the summer. <laughs> yeah, we lit those things on fire, man. <laughs> Just at the end of the uh, bee, that was my other problem with the house. Over the summer, I had the bee infestation, the uh, ground bee infestation. Um, We couldn't get rid of those things the easy way, so we just lit them on fire. And they're 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 part of the conservation of mass and energy at this point. So, uh, but yeah. So anyway, here's what's coming up on the program. In addition to Will Flanders from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. We'll also be uh, checking in with Jesse Kramer, Representative Jesse Kramer. This is his last uh, term as an assemblyman. He has decided to um, allow somebody else to run for his seat. Uh, And he is going to join us on the air to talk about some of the things that our legislature doesn't... um, doesn't doesn't see in in abundance that the Republicans in the legislature do not think rise to the level of immediate attention. These are some of the cultural issues that we have allowed to go by the wayside because the lobbyist driven way we do legislation and budgeting in Wisconsin tends to make it more difficult for for some of the cultural fixes to be implemented. So we're going to be talking with Representative Kramer on that. We'll also take a look at the problem with. The, the press and the problem with the press is is a unique one at this point. It's beyond what it used to be 
when it was Reagan or Bush. It has taken on a character. A char- that is a fair bit more insane. So we'll get into that on the show. Lots of other stuff coming up. What I'm going to do, though, is take a break. We'll come back with Will Flanders from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty to talk about the discipline problem in the schools that never had to be, that was teed up by the Obama administration in the form of a threat to those schools by the Department of Justice a threat of civil rights lawsuits if they didn't shut down their discipline policies. All of that's ahead. I'll be right back. Will Flanders from Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. What is um, what has taken place since the school districts have adopted sort of the antithesis of what most people would consider discipline? So I think what we've seen in general is that teachers no longer feel supported in the classroom. We've seen that um, your story after story of teachers that they send a student out who's misbehaving and the student's right back in the class five minutes later. And sometimes we even go to more extremes where there's actual physical violence that's going on in the classroom and there still seem to be light penalties that are handed out to, uh, to the students. So we've seen polling data from teachers uh, where they say that this, this new system is not effective, that we're not able to effectively control our classrooms. And we've even seen some data on students where students in these schools that have implemented these policies say that they feel less safe. Uh, but what hadn't been done before our study is what is the impact on actual academic performance? And that's what we've added to the discussion here. So in, in what you have found, that the one thing that this discipline or rather non-discipline policy did was, at least in, in urban areas that had high populations of black and Hispanic students, it reduced the rates of suspension in those districts. It did not, however, produce the same results in, in non-urban districts with, with lower populations of black and Hispanic students. And it seems that what you find where this has taken place, where the non-discipline has has replaced or this sort of restorative um, justice model has replaced discipline, academics are suffering. That's right. We looked at proficiency on the state exam over the past uh, six years, and we looked at both math and ELA. So, you know, two of the main subjects that we think are sort of critically important to student development. And we found in both of those areas statewide that in schools that implemented these alternative discipline practices that are generally known as positive behavioral interventions, or PBIS, uh, we see a decline in proficiency. Schools that implement these policies have lower proficiency after they implement them than they do before. So what is the explanation for this? So I think, you know, it, you could talk to teachers and you can get a real feel for, I think if you would talk to teachers, you'd, you'd get this explanation, you'd get the idea that it's really hurting school climate, that when you have students who are misbehaving in class, um, these restorative justice approaches aren't always the most effective. They may be effective in some instances. There may be schools that implement these things in a, in a specific way that works for them. But in general, keeping a student in the classroom uh, who's misbehaving hurts the school climate, is distracting to other students, and really can, add, can sort of have spillover effects as more students say, hey, you know, if I misbehave, there's really no penalty. I'm still in the class here, and I get to, you know, show off in front of my friends, or as we've mentioned, sometimes even worse things like actual physical uh, violence and things of that nature are occurring more often. What I uh, what I was wondering is was about that spillover effect. Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that you can say about what's going to happen when school climate gets obliterated. Um, you've got kids who are afraid 
uh, and they're fearful of the students and they don't they don't look at an adult authority figure and say that person can help me because that person, that teacher, that administrator can't even help him or herself. So that I can see to be um, uh, th- that would add, I think, to the destroyed climate in the classroom. But that spillover effect I've often wondered about because you've got a group of students who are always going to behave and they want to sit there and they want to and they want to look forward and they want to listen to the teacher and they want to just do their work. You've got a very another small group of students that want to be disruptive all the time. And then you've got students in the middle who might go either way, who given a, you know, a calm environment would pretty much pay attention and do their work. But given a chaotic environment might join with some of the mayhem and put themselves at risk as well. Absolutely. I think, you know, you, you can think of any classroom environment or any environment where you've been around a lot of kids. If there's bad behaviors going on, those tend to, those tend to fester, those tend to grow because Kids are always trying to push the limits. Anyone, anyone who has kids can sort of understand that, right? Kids always want to see how far they can go. And if the kids were using, you know, uh, engaging in extreme negative behaviors, really seem to be out of the classroom for five minutes and right back in the class, or face these sort of soft penalties where there's really no clear negative consequences, then yeah, kids, every kid will try to push the envelope, or, or many kids, we shouldn't say all, but many kids will try to push the envelope further. And that is a negative consequence for the teacher, who no longer feels that they can control their classroom, um, as well as for all the kids who simply do want to learn and have an Yeah, and they want a safe environment. environment. It's interesting that students say, when they're surveyed on these on this discipline, or rather this um, positive behavioral reinforcement strategy, um, I like to call it non-discipline, is they say they feel less safe. And I'm sure that the, that the reason is that simply they look at the adults and they say that the adults have no control. Who do I go to to feel safe? How do I find a way to feel safe? And the question was always, is it affecting academic performance? And now you have determined that it is. Are we talking about, you know, different effects, uh, more dramatic effects in, in districts that have implemented, you know, a sort of a, a, a stronger version of this? I'm thinking Madison. I'm thinking Milwaukee, where they've pretty much just simply adopted this rule that we're not going to suspend kids because and we're not going to call police and we're going to discourage this kind of um, this kind of, uh, you know, seeking help um, the, of, by the teachers or by other students, by adults. Um, has it got is it worse in Milwaukee, for instance? Is it worse in Madison? Is it worse in some of the areas that have really thoroughly embraced the idea of shutting down discipline in the name of disparate impact? So what was actually kind of surprising, what we saw here was that some of the worst impacts, the strongest negative impacts, were in suburban and rural districts, maybe not the ones you'd expect. I think one of the reasons for that is that uh, implementation of these non-discipline policies, as you call them, has been more comprehensive in the city, so it's harder to see you know, different, different effects between schools that do and don't. Uh, but it seems that this is having a negative effect across the board. When we look specifically at Milwaukee, uh, just, just Milwaukee separated out from the rest of the state, we also saw negative um, proficiency impacts as well in, in English language arts. So, I mean, it, it, in a school district, you can't really afford to lose much more in terms of proficiency. Is it having an effect? Is, is, is it having an academic effect um, across the board? So it's black students and white students and Hispanic students and all students, or is it specifically to a specific subset of students? So we see the negative academic consequences across the board. And when you look at Milwaukee, you know, this is a particularly, you know, pertinent time for this study to be coming out because just last week or earlier, this, just last week, yes, I'm getting my weeks confused. Uh, just last week, uh, MPS entered an agreement with the Justice Department, um, settling a lawsuit that's on this very topic. Um, and they're sort of effectively being forced 
to implement these alternative discipline policies, even under the current administration, these holdover lawsuits from the Obama administration, curiously, are still being enforced to some extent, and we're seeing MPS uh, being subject to this federal level of discipline, um, even as we see these negative consequences that are resulting in terms of proficiency. So I'm 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 curious. Um, why hasn't, or or maybe it just hasn't occurred to the state? It seems to me that the state is um, is the solution here. That the state legislature says we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to standardize discipline policies. Certainly, we're going to allow for some, um, you know, some some personalization depending on the case. You know, you don't want just simply zero tolerance or whatever it might be. And and uh, Representative Thiesfeld's bill, which appears to be going nowhere in the legislature, it seems that those two things do two things. Number one, they actually produce protections for students and teachers. And number two, they put Attorney General Brad Schimmel in charge of dealing with any potential civil rights litigation that could be coming against individual school districts, which don't have the wherewithal or the financial means to fight. Absolutely. I think, yeah, we see a two-pronged approach here. You're absolutely right. One is that we would like to see at the federal level, we'd like to see these the Dear Colleague letter reversed. Uh, we'd like to see the feds get out of the classroom. And I think what that does is that allows school districts and the states, the individual states, to set up policies that are more effective for them. Like we always, you know, we always think of the concept of federalism. Let people decide for themselves what policies work best for them. So we've talked to some school leaders that say in their particular school district, some of these practices have actually been beneficial. If you're a school district and you can, you know, sort of show evidence that that's working, great. But what we shouldn't have is we shouldn't have a federally enforced one-size-fits-all discipline policy for every school district in the country. And that's what we're getting. So I think the first step is restoring um, some of the freedom to the state and then to the school districts. The second thing I think you're right is the is the Thiesfeld bill. What that does is it empowers teachers to regain control of the classroom by taking disruptive kids out of the classroom for a short time and also by allowing teachers to be aware of the problem discipline students that they're going to be having in their classroom in a particular year. So I think both of those things together, both at the federal level and the state level, uh, would be very effective in, in reversing some of this that we're Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Yeah, I also think that an additional layer of just simply sort of standardizing best practices for discipline, just sort of a basic outline and structure for discipline in the schools makes sense as well. So then if, you know, if Milwaukee says, well, we had to do it, we have to implement these policies because we, we were threatened with a civil rights lawsuit. This is our way to settle a claim that the federal government has made against us. Remember, the whole reason this all began to happen, and it began to happen in earnest in 2013, is because the Obama administration's DOJ threatened to 
sue individual school districts. It wasn't the states they were threatening to sue because the states would say, okay, feel free to sue us. The states have enormously, you know, greater resources and a team of legal experts. But it was individual school districts who were looking at their budgets and saying, we didn't budget money to fight the federal government and the federal government can drag us through this process for years. We don't have the, the dough. We operate under levy limits in Wisconsin. Um, you know, I don't think the, the taxpayers are going to be happy if we go to them with a referendum saying we need to create a legal fund. And in the event that the taxpayers would say no, what do you do? You settle. Absolutely. And one thing I mentioned is that we saw the effects more in rural and suburban districts. I think what you're saying there might be part of the explanation for that. Um, sure. These districts be- are even more fearful than urban districts of the ability of their ability to fight the federal government if the federal government comes down on them. And more than that, they also probably don't have the resources to implement these programs effectively to the extent that they can be implemented effectively because they're they're smaller. They have much smaller budgets. So I think right, but you know what? Come together to make this even worse in rural and small towns. But to your point, the smaller budgets, you know, sm- smaller levies. The federal government is still going to cost, fighting the federal government is going to cost the same whether you're fighting from rural Wisconsin, suburban Wisconsin, or Milwaukee. It's, it's, it's not like the federal government says, okay, we got a sliding scale, we'll give you a 30% discount because you've got levy limits and you're a small school district. That, it, so to that, for that reason, it seemed like it made the most sense to have the attorney general fight on behalf of all of these school districts. But as it stands right now, nothing's changing. Um, the school districts don't appear to be kicking back, which I find interesting. If you look at the testimony in Representative Thiesfeld's bill, um, the, the teachers union organized, uh, an effort to, to resist Representative Thiesfeld's bill. Um, pr- presumably, I guess, you know, teachers without control of their classrooms is what teachers union members want. I mean, you're not seeing a lot of enthusiasm to pass that bill forward and get that signed into law. Um, and I don't know why the Trump administration seems to be dragging its feet and rolling back on the threats of lawsuits by the Department of Justice, because it seems like something that would be pretty easy to fix. So we're still sort of stuck with it. Yeah, I think there's, there's been rumors, and I think, I think when I talked to you about our previous paper last uh, December, um, we, we thought that this policy would be repealed by DeVos and the Trump administration relatively soon. To date, that has not happened. Um, we still hear the rumors, and we're seeing news stories that there's consideration of a repeal. Um, we hope that this new um, paper that we've written really that really provides the most comprehensive evidence on some of the negative effects that this policy is resulting in will sort of push that over the top and you know maybe we'll see a change relatively soon. Uh, but but it is curious that the delay because and particularly when you know the policy could remain on the books without being enforced, but we see with this MPS story that it's still being enforced and that's especially concerning. Where can people find the detailed analysis, because it's, it's, it's deeper than what you and I have gotten into on this uh, program in this segment. Where can folks find the study that you and Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty did? It is available at will-law.org, and uh, I think that's probably the best place to check it out. Will, W-I-L-L-law.org, and Will Flanders, my guest on the program. Thanks a lot, Will. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. You as well. we got to take a break here. I'll be right back. Ordinarily, you hear criticisms of Donald Trump from the left, um, obsessively from the left, saying that he is, you know, the second coming of Joseph Stalin. But you also hear criticism, which is absurd, 
You also hear criticisms from the right of Donald Trump that he is just not conservative. Um, And that tends to come from the sort of hand-wringing never-Trump crowd um, on the right. So let's address that. Is he conservative? Is he embracing conservative ideas? Is he embracing conservative policy? A lot of folks use the Heritage Foundation as sort of the gold standard measuring stick for whether or not somebody in elected office, particularly in Congress uh, or a president, is um, is hewing to conservative principles. And by that standard, uh, I've got Lucas Boyce from the Heritage Foundation on the phone with me. By that standard, Lucas, it seems like the president's doing pretty well. We think he's doing um, very, very well. Um, we've done an analysis and and recommended to him a series of, of recommendations, uh, 334 unique recommendations to be exact. And after an analysis of the first year, and this has given all of the political headwinds that he's faced with respect to the slow pace of appointments and key decision makers, he's adopted or embraced two-thirds of our total recommendations. And so we're really, really encouraged um, by the first year. Um, it's been a great launch. Uh, 64% adoption rate is pretty impressive considering that the same analysis was done in 1981 after Ronald Reagan's first year in office, and that was a 49% adoption or uh, adoption rate of our recommendation. All right, so, so, so Ray, he's doing better than Reagan did in his first year. Yes, he is, and we're, and we're encouraged by that. There's lots more to be done, of course, and lots more collaboration, and, and of course there's a lot of different of our recommendations that require um, executive orders and acts of Congress, but so far this is a really, really great start. All right, so is this a list that you say, okay, I'm gonna, we're the Heritage Foundation, we're going to hand over a list, or is he naturally just, you know, is his natural North Star toward the same things the Heritage Foundation tends to value? Well, we have this stat. There's uh, at least 70 um, former heritage staffers that have been offered positions in the administration. And so I think the question kind of answers itself. He's willing to let people into his administration that are of a conservative ilk, which gives us a lot of encouragement to the things that he's willing to embrace or at least consider. You know, the thing is about what what Trump seems to be all about is delegating to competent people. And sometimes, at least maybe the first couple of months, there were quite a few baubles um, in the in the level of competence. But it seems like lately, um, you know, things seem to be moving along fairly smoothly. But if he is actually willing to delegate to competent people and the competent people he is choosing are from the Heritage Foundation, um, then and not I, just the Heritage Foundation, but or but conservatives. We, we, sure. Yeah. So that that's I mean that says he is just sort and I, and he's not a he's not a uniquely conservative president I think he's uniquely action oriented president but um but he's he's you know kind of a boilerplate conservative if you actually look at the people he's appointed and the policies he has embraced or the policies he has passed you guys aren't Carriage Foundation isn't nuts you're you're standard you know sort of standard issue limited government conservatives. That's right. That's right. And we have a saying that personnel is policy. So it says a lot about the president by the people he's willing to hire and have on his team, which shows that he's willing to embrace and look at very strongly and consider conservative orthodoxy. What are some of the um, what are some of the the agenda items on the on the list of three hundred thirty four things that surprised yeah, so Heritage Foundation? 
Sure, reshaping the national monuments was a big one. His religious liberty executive order reinstating the Mexico City policy. This is a policy, this executive order prevents taxpayer money from funding international groups involved in abortion. That was one of his first acts in Congress. Of course, you've heard a lot about increase in military spending. His budget calls for a $54 billion increase in military spending to try and improve our capacity and our capability. Um, welfare to work programs. He's wanting us to have work requirements for those. And then, of course, you've heard about net neutrality, the Paris Climate Accord, which he pulled us out of, and also UNESCO. In October 2017, President announced he was putting an end to the U.S. membership of the U.N. Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, commonly known as UNESCO. And so those are just a few of the highlights, but he's done just an amazing job at, at, the, at the under- secretary, the deputy assistant secretary level, with his executive orders um, and with his budget has shown uh, that he's really embraced a lot of our key policy recommendations and prescriptions for limited government um, in an efficient government, which we also want. Well, and that's the thing is that some of these things, too, are um, that I guess you would you could call them. Agenda items that most conservatives would agree with, but they never tend to rise to the top of the heap in terms of attention right off the bat. And, sure. and so some of what we've actually seen um, is wish list stuff for a long, long time. That's what I even said that about two weeks ago. I said, you know, if you actually look at Trump's record, a lot of it looks like conservative wish list stuff because conservatives talk a great game. But a lot of times when it when the rubber of campaigning meets the road of governing, the conservative principle part goes by the wayside, at least with regard to Trump. You can't necessarily say the same thing about Congress, but at least with regard to Trump and his executive capacity, that hasn't gone by the wayside. He is he has said it. He said he was going to do it and he's done it. And there are some things that just make you as a conservative want to hug yourself. <laughs> we we find that to be the case. And especially as you look at Trump's first budget, we saw a lot of the different policy prescriptions that we recommended um found a life and a place in that budget which shows his commitment to trying to move those things forward. Now we need to work with Congress to continue to move the ball down the field, but we're encouraged by a president that's hired really, really great people, personnel is policy, and we're encouraged by a president who's willing to embrace or strongly consider points of view that may not be his original point of view, but we're encouraged by his flexibility in listening to all sides, and of course we're encouraged that he would adopt um, a lot of our policy prescriptions as he moves forward uh, in his governance. You know, something else I was just thinking of as well that um, is sort of a conservative wish list thing is we had here in the state of Wisconsin, I don't know how many times we'd applied for waivers or we had applied for flexibility here at the state level. Um, we have a, a team comprised of great lawyers and really good policy types that are pursuing what's called competitive federalism. Um, and that is something that it, we always thought was going to have to be a fight, uh, in, assuming it was still going to be a fight with the Trump administration. But it looks like he's actually embracing or at least will to consider the waivers that would allow competitive federalism to really take root at the state level and really start to get a movement behind it. And so, I mean, that's something that I'm, I'm not even sure if it's on your list, but it's something that I was surprised by after hearing some of the optimism coming from our state legislative leaders. Sure. And, and how we've seen that play out is um, in his ability to communicate to all of his cabinet secretaries, I want us to reform government. I want you to look at all the different regulations that might be choking entrepreneurs and be choking 
business, and I want you to be able to take a look at those and give me a solid recommendation on how to make it easier for this country to be prosperous by ensuring that red tape is not an issue when we're trying to um, create economic opportunity. Yeah, and it's the re- it's the it's the abhorrence of red tape. I think that is that is eventually going to be the hallmark of his presidency beyond the Twitter stuff. Is is that he seems to despise red tape and he puts people? I'm, I'm thinking of the FDA. I'm thinking yep. of the FCC, particularly even the FDA, where you know it's costing almost two billion dollars to bring a drug to market, and now he's got the he's got the F- FDA working on ways to reduce the red tape and the burdensome regulations that slow down the ability of of companies to bring drugs to market in a cost effective way. That's again a conservative wish list item that I never thought right. would be addressed, and is a hallmark of. A central line in everybody's job description. How can we make it easier for the American people to do what they most want to do: pursue happiness in the way they in the way they see fit, to pursue economic freedom, to be pros- to be prosperous? And we've seen that over and over and over again. Not just with his statements, but with his executive orders, with his budget, um, and in the meetings that we've had across the entire government, uh, we've seen a real openness to a lot of our different recommendations. That doesn't mean that they've taken them all, and and, and we won't claim that they all, but the spirit of working together and collaborating on issues that affect everyday Americans is important. It's not the Twitter stuff, it's not all that stuff, it's it's below all that stuff. We see an administration that looks like a typical Republican administration in its form and function, which we, again, are pretty encouraged about. I would say a typical Republican administration in form and function, but with an executive that actually is much more oriented toward action. That list of items you just ticked off, Lucas, um, are, are things that have already seen action. Um, yeah. And and yeah. there's and again, you're seeing additional forms of action. But he, you know, so 67 percent either embraced or he's he's actually done. Where where are some of the weak spots in the administration? Well, here's one thing that we've seen. This is we did this analysis in 1981, and here's the weak spot that we've seen re, a reoccurring parallel in history. Um, there are at any given point there are like some over a little 600 key appointments that any administration has to make, and so far only 200 or so of those have actually been recommended for key policy decision makers. And so we think that this um, will actually tick up our percentage, our adoption rate would tick up if we actually had people in key positions to meet with to recommend specific policy prescriptions. And so where we see some continuing headwinds that we have to just manage and we don't have any control over Congress or the pace of appointments or what the White House submits to Congress for um, presidential approved Senate confirmed seats. But what we do think as we move into year two, as some of these key appointments are made, at the Department of Justice, at the Department of State, at the Department of Defense, then we can have core meetings yeah. on some of those some of those policy prescriptions that we haven't been able to push forward yet because there's no one there to enact or to consider them. And specifically, the Department of Justice, I'm thinking, just it's it's a hot mess. You've got a decent attorney general. He's recused himself from a number of different things. He's meeting resistance because the Obama administration left behind political appointees, made them civil service positions, sure. and and so you've got you've got major major resistance in a key 
agency. I'm thinking even as it applies to the discipline issue at the Department of Education, which Betsy DeVos is trying to unwind, we still got Department of Justice lawyers suing Wisconsin schools. You know, it's that, yeah. it's that kind yeah. of stuff that ends up making, that, that gums up the ability of, of an executive to really start streamlining things if you can't get some of the bigger um, agencies under control. And that's a big one. Yes, yeah, 633 top appointments that have to be made by any president. And we have so far in this administration only 252 in year one. So you have got some 300 or so key individuals that we need to do the work of government, do the work of trying to look at some of these regulations, look at some of these policies, but there's no one there to actually do them. And so, so given that, 64% 64% adoption rate is pretty good in year one. Good point. And hopefully over over the course of the next year, you uh, submit all these other appointments, you get these people in, and then we're able to move that adoption rate up. Good to have you on the program, Lucas. Thanks very much for joining me today. All right. Even Thank the New you. York Times, by the way, folks, talked about this. They couldn't believe it. Uh, Lucas Boyce from the Heritage Foundation. The New York Times actually did an article about how this supposedly non-conservative with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. President, who is Attila the Hun to the left, or he is a non-conservative to some of the members of the Never Trump right, has actually embraced or enacted 64% of the Heritage Foundation's items that have been conservative wish list items for a long time. When the New York Times recognizes that, maybe some of the folks at National Review could, too. We'll be right back. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Welcome back to the program. This just in. Michael Haas, Brian Bell, out of their jobs at the Elections and Ethics Commission after waging a very high-profile public relations fight to try to keep their jobs, after, of course, they were implicated in the highly partisan, corrupt, and illegal John Doe investigation when they were with the Government Accountability Board. They can't imagine why the Senate would reject them from confirmation for permanent positions at these agencies. I don't ever know why the Wisconsin Senate ever permitted them to be appointed even in a temporary capacity to these agencies in the first place. Now they can't imagine why, especially after the release of the Attorney General's report, they wouldn't be allowed to keep their jobs as overseers of Wisconsin elections and ethics. Well, perhaps that's because 
While with the Government Accountability Board, you were engaged in a partisan witch hunt designed as opposition research to take down the conservatives in Wisconsin. I don't know why Scott Fitzgerald will be bothered by that. Do you? Do you, Scott Bauer? Does it, the Associated Press? Pat Marley at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel? Are you just shocked by this? I would have been shocked it would have gone any other way. The, the media in this state, in the way they have the appalling partisan coverage of the John Doe and the fallout of the John Doe. Um, I mean, you're, you're up there with CNN on fake news, people. The media in the state of Wisconsin was part of the public relations effort. Nobody is going to be shedding crocodile tears for Michael Haas and Brian Bell. No one. Not even in government. This was all about trying to avoid a confrontation with the reality of what the John Doe was. And what the John Doe was, was an abusive, unconstitutional, legal strategy to conduct opposition research claiming that it was instead something different, that it was an investigation into campaign finance violations by Republicans and Scott Walker. That was simply a pretext. Just like the Mueller investigation is a pretext. Russian collusion is a pretext. In fact, I don't know if you saw this story. If not, I would highly recommend both reading the story at The Daily Caller and also checking out the podcast of Ron Johnson's interview with Jay Weber on our sister station, WISN in Milwaukee. On the Mueller investigation, Ron Johnson was able to finally gather some of the texts, the ones at least that hadn't been deleted deliberately by FBI agent Peter Strzok, as he explains via text message that he thought the Mueller investigation was a big nothing. That there's no there there. There isn't Russian collusion there. The Mueller investigation's a pretext. It's not about even taking down Trump directly, just like the John Doe wasn't about going after Walker directly. It's about getting at Trump sideways. I was speaking with Sheriff David Clark, former Sheriff David Clark, who also experienced this this tactic himself. It's about going for the lieutenants. It's about going for underlings. It's about trying to create the perception that there is corruption. Nobody actually thinks Mueller is going to get Trump. Nobody actually thinks Mueller is going to turn up any kind of evidence of Russian collusion, just like nobody actually thought, except maybe the the maniac lunatics who, who still sing in the Capitol Rotunda every noon, that the John Doe investigation ever was going to result in the frog marching of Scott Walker in handcuffs anywhere. Nobody who was actually conducting the investigation actually ever thought they were going to ultimately be able to bring campaign finance violation charges against anybody. The best the John Doe investigation ever was going to get were paper violations by people like Kelly Ryan Fleischer, Darlene Wink, just like the best the Mueller investigation is going to get are paper violations by people like Michael Flynn or George Papadopoulos. This is the left strategy because they can't actually sell their ideas. If you can't sell your ideas, what do you do? 
If you can't sell your ideas, you create distractions in order to create distractions, to create doubt in the minds of voters. You try to give the appearance of impropriety. That's what all of this is about. It is a, it is a strategy and a tactic in a strategy that has served the Democrats somewhat well. They've never been responsible for the policies that they've ever enacted. They've never had to take responsibility for the failure of their policies. And they've never been forced to cough up policies that actually make sense. Because they've been engaged in a strategy of diversion and distraction and manipulation of a media narrative. It happened in the Wisconsin John Doe. You can see it repeated almost tactic for tactic exactly the same way in the Mueller investigation. If Donald Trump disbanded this investigation, which he has the power to do tomorrow, the media would light its hair on fire just like they did when finally the courts shut down the John Doe and finally the legislature tore apart the Government Accountability Board. The Wisconsin press practically had a stroke. The same thing would happen with the national press and Donald Trump. But you know what ultimately came out of the Wisconsin legislature having the balls to break apart the Government Accountability Board and disband the John Doe? Finally, we were able to get an answer to the question of just how deep the corrupt rabbit hole goes, the the rabbit hole that was dug by the Democrats. Just how deep does it go and how corrupt are these people? We're finally getting an idea of just how bad it was. And if Trump rips the Band-Aid now on the Mueller investigation, after the media is done practically having to be treated for hypertension... We'd finally start to see just how corrupt things have gotten. We've got a scent of it because of what has been turned out, courtesy of congressional investigations of the FBI, the Uranium One deal, the Hillary Clinton exoneration, and now an investigation of where those text messages disappeared to from the partisan actors at the FBI involved in the Mueller investigation. We've got a scent of it, but we don't really have... A, a, a true appreciation of just how bad it stinks. Anyway, I'm going to take a break here. We're going to come back with Tim Graham from the Media Research Center to talk about that same media that lights its hair on fire at any given moment. And if that includes creating phony stories, they're willing to do it. That's the press in America today. The, the free press that has not been reined in. Because Donald Trump is president, as they claim they have been. Are you kidding me? It is a partisan press. It is not an objective press, but it is a free partisan press because they have been going forward with their lies for a long time and they show no signs of slowing down. I'll be right back. cats jimmy my man you know we forgot to do at the top of the hour holy holy buckets holy burgers holy fried pickles we forgot to give out the word this hour well ladies and gentlemen we do have a new word in the grand in your hand contest you still have time i just thought i'd pull you know just some some bad midwesternisms out there for you to holy buckets uh we still have some time 
So why don't you text the word Bills, B-I-L-L-S, Bills, Bills. No? Money. Oh, oh, have, oh, heck my, I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> heck my, that's from the movie, uh, that's from the movie Groundhog Day. That's awesome. Yeah, heck my, I can't believe it. No, it's money. I'm so wrong. I'm so wrong, I'm right. It's money. That's your word this hour. Have I confused you all sufficiently? I apologize. Money is your word this hour for the Grand in Your Hand contest. Contest. If you text the word money, money, say it one more time, money, more money. If you text the word money to the number 200-200, you have a chance to win money. $1,000 in the Grand in Your Hand contest. Remember, if you enter the contest, you'll receive a text from iHeartRadio. You will receive additional texts from iHeartRadio. Standard data and message rates apply. Oh, my stars. All right. uh, Tim Graham is standing by on the phone from Media Research Center from the Virginia area, you know, but he's originally from Wisconsin. Hey, how you doing? Good. (laughs) He's like, I don't want to say anything that makes me sound like I'm from Wisconsin. Heck <laughs> I'm self-conscious. I'm, self, I'm self-conscious. Tim and I were just talking. He said he heard himself last week on Fox Business in a recorded interview, and you, you heard the Wisconsin in you, did you? Yeah, I think so. My wife's from Minnesota, and they say funny things like, give me a dollar. <laughs> a dollar? What's yeah, that? A dollar. Like dollar. Yeah. Well, I try to I try to shake it off as best I can, but I I can't avoid saying Wisconsin the way Wisconsin people say Wisconsin. So it's right in my nose, and uh, you know that's just the way it is. And I don't and I say we own it. All right, Tim. That's not why I have you on the program though. But you are from Viroqua, so we like to yeah. claim you as our own. Um, I have you on the phone to talk about the. You know, as you look back at the year 2017, and as we've seen the media not change a bit in 2018, it is extraordinary. And I don't know what's causing it. Is it is it the pressure of social media? Is it the 24-7 news networks? Is it but their their obsession about resistance and destroying Trump? I mean, we can compare it to Reagan or we can compare it to the media during Bush, but really it's it's several orders of magnitude more bizarre, more unhinged, uh, and more disconnected from journalistic principle than than even some of the crazy light-your-hair-on-fire Bush stories. True. Uh, obviously, with Reagan and Bush, I think there was an idea of America made the wrong decision. Um, and they wanted to try to every night to convince Americans that they made the wrong decision, at least those that didn't vote for the Democrats. There's a different tone here now. There's a tone that, uh, like, we were all sitting here and we're all about to die. There's a urgency, there's a hair on fire, there's a this man who needs to be removed from office pronto. I mean, that's kind of the tone we get. We have a dangerous idiot in the White House. And And there's a peer pressure. There's a real peer pressure there that nobody wants to be accused of, quote-unquote, normalizing Trump. Well, first of all, I think we can all agree, whether you love Trump or hate Trump, normal is not the word you use. But I think it's that whole notion that they don't want it to be like every other president. You're going to just, you know, you're going to have a press conference. You ask the press secretary some questions. She bats it back. No, it's got to be, you know, 
how on earth can you come out here and have this it's job, Jim Acosta. you woman? It's Jim Acosta, you know, every single day making it about him. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the obsession over the scoops of ice cream. It's the media obsessing over whether or not Sarah Huckabee Sanders made her pecan pie. You know, it's... it's it, you know, Donald Trump has got heart disease. It's every, and, and it's in the excuse of, of, of not normalizing President Trump. So that's why we're not talking about deregulation. That's why we're not talking about a growing economy. That's why we're not talking about the, all, the tax reform dividends that are already being paid. That's why they're not covering the March for Life for the umpteenth year. Is that their excuse? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, in the March for Life, ignoring the March for Life is just what they do. Look, the fact that Trump spoke... Uh, even from the Rose Garden, which, I'm sorry, George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan never did. They never somehow had the idea of appearing in the Rose Garden and having it appear, that image appear live at the march. Uh, he he did more than and other Republican presidents. Uh, so it got a little bit of attention. But yeah, what we found was, you know, eh, we'll give it two minutes and and then we'll give you 32 minutes on the Women's March. Exactly. And the, again, the Women's March. And listening to screed after screed after screed about how women's rights have been eviscerated. You know how many women's rights have been eviscerated since Donald Trump became president? None. How about none? How about zero? And yet you've, you're listening to these women saying the most, you know, completely refutable things. And not a single person in the media, save, you know, maybe Tucker Carlson on his show, is willing to push back at all against it's now just a pile. This is why Trump can can successfully and accurately more than 50 percent of the time call this fake news. Well, I think that he does it in a way that's just playground taunting and it works like a charm because they get so offended. I mean, so it accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. But there's so much of news today where one, one way you'd say it's fake is that it's because it's all opinion instead of reporting. Another way you'd say it's fake is because there's so much speculation about what's going to happen next instead of what happened two hours ago. And, and then there's the, you know, yeah, there's the, then there's the fake where he's Stalin. You know, Jeff Flake says he's Stalin. And they just report that, like, isn't that interesting? No, I think the idea that, that Trump is a mass murderer is fake news. You know, I mean, this is, you're supposed to be, if you're sensitive to facts, you'd be saying, excuse me, Senator Flake, are you high? Yeah, are you, are you drunk today? Did you, I mean, I know you're mad at the guy, but have you been drinking? Right, but you don't get any kind of pushback on that. Um, no. You get, you get assertions uh, that Donald Trump is going to kill illegal aliens or Mike Pence is going to put gay people into concentration camps. And it's accepted as real and a correction by the people who are supposed to be the information folks um, is considered normal. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Trump. And so instead, we'll let phony stories about 
Russian collusion. Um, you know, we'll let that go on for days and days before you get, you know, what what amounts to the TV version of the bottom of the fold, you know, asterisk correction on something, never a retraction. And and they shrug their shoulders and they say, oh, well, if it damages Trump, we're OK with that. But 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 it's that news has become opinion. And that is that is not news, uh, Tim. And when news has become opinion and even supposedly objective news is, in fact, racked with opinion, then, you know, how do people discern, um, you know, facts from opinion? Well, I mean, let's face it. The, one of our opinions is, is fighting over what a fact is. Because, you know, liberals will say, we're all about facts. And the fact is, Trump is an idiot. You know? Right. <laughs> so or, they, you're exactly they right. The, the fact is that Trump is going to kill the planet and murder millions of people. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See, and that's the problem you have is that I think that people, uh, you know, Jeff Flake's whole thing is we need shared facts. Well, what, what we used to have was the model where Nixon was a crook, and that was a shared fact, and Ted Kennedy was not a crook, and that was a shared fact. And what you had was a, a set of liberal opinions, which were all granted as the, you know, as the facts that ruled our democracy. And that's, so what people, when they complain about we need shared facts, they're upset that Fox News gets to say, but wait, fellas, this is also news. These missing texts at the FBI is news. And, of course, the, uh, the networks are like, what missing texts? Right. And that's, that's the game. That's the, the game they play. They figure, they figure that if they don't report it, if they report the distractions, how many days are we on Stormy Daniels? Um, by the way, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm surprised that does, that's not sticking better than it is. Um, we're not talking about five months of deliberately deleted texts from, from Peter Strzok, Strzok and, his, uh, and his little, you know, fi- his little uh, you know, fling uh, at mm-hmm. the FBI. We're not talking about that. Trey Gowdy determines that before the texts were deleted, what were they texting about? deleting texts and then we've got <laughs> indications that that there was also some kind of um at least if it wasn't you know a, a an actual thing it was the way the fbi was orienting itself toward the trump administration a secret society to resist trump i mean it's news tim but you know you you wouldn't know that if you popped on any of the network news or uh, most of the cable networks well, and when the F- if the FBI, if James Comey had come out and said, we're indicting Hillary, they would have talked about the FBI as dangerously political. Absolutely they would have. But now but when James Comey comes out after abundant evidence that he could indict Hillary and says, nah. And now we have evidence that it was discussed, that the exoneration of Hillary Clinton was discussed before an investigation even began? Oh, that's not news. Why do you want to relitigate the past? That's what you get from these folks, and then they just simply move on. And we talk about, you know, shiny objects again. Tim Graham, thank you for being on the program today. My pleasure. Good to have you from the Media Research Center. I need to take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the program. This just in. Clements out as sponsor of the Milwaukee Brewers' famous racing sausages. What? What is going on? It says here um, the 25-year sponsorship link is being broken. Clements. um, Did you do that on purpose? What? Talk about food? Sponsorship link? 
Yeah, I didn't do that. That's actually not my joke. Sausages, get it? That's not my joke. I do get your joke. I, I, but it's not mine. It was probably intended. That's awesome. But it wasn't mine. Um, I'm reading from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel here. Uh, Yeah, 25 year sponsorship. I mean, I hope the sausage races are still going to be around. I always root for the Polish myself. I, I root for my people. As, you know, represented by a giant foam sausage running around a baseball diamond. But hey, um, I don't know. I've, I've, I've just saw the story, so I have to look at more of the details of it. I, I wish I could share more information with you. It's bigger news than the Bucks firing Jason Kidd, I think, in sports circles. Do you think it is? It was bigger news to me. <laughs> it's bigger news to a lot of people. You I know, think. it was... It, but it, I'm, a, I'm more of a baseball fan. It's not nothing against the Bucks. It's just... I, I I'm... I have a hard time following professional basketball. It's just a thing. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, that's on the Journal Sentinel's website. I'm sure it's on all of the local websites. And, Jimmy, I'm sure that in very short order, it's going to be at WIBA.com, right? As we speak, it is being uploaded to WIBA.com, your source of news information. Also, awesome blog posts. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, up on my blog at WIBA.com slash Vicky. Don't forget you've got the Grand in Your Hand contest going on as we speak. I can't tell you how to win money by, uh, by giving you the word for the contest because, you know, I'm only supposed to give out the word once. But suffice to say, you could win money if you remembered the word and texted the word in to the number 200-200. Again, a chance to win $1,000 in Money. All right. State Representative Jesse Kramer, who's one of my favorites, is on the phone with me right now. And I'm sad to say that you're going to be leaving the legislature. Uh, I know that you have, um, you know, some other some uh, it was never intended to be a career for you. So you have other things you need to pursue. But I'm sorry to see that you're not going to be running for another term, Jesse. I thought you were a great asset to the Republican team in the legislature. Well, thank you, Vicki. And it's, it's really nice to know that I'm one of your favorites. <laughs> you are, in fact. You know, yeah. and here's why. Um, because you were never afraid to take on some pretty, you know, boilerplate conservative stuff, but the cultural stuff. Um, nobody's afraid to take on a regulatory bill, and nobody's afraid really to take on something that's going to improve the tax climate in Wisconsin or grow jobs. But it seems like some of our friends, for they are our friends, um, on the right, are afraid to touch cultural issues because maybe they fear editorial page, you know, condemnation or what. But, but this is what Wisconsin actually wants you guys to do: is address some of the the, the other problems beyond just a budget. I agree, Vicky. And and one of the one of the statements that I did make on the floor today when I addressed my colleagues, and none of them, there were only a select few who really knew before today. But uh, I addressed my family and my colleagues, and I said the difference between a politician and a statesman. <coughs> Excuse me. Is that a politician thinks about the next election, while the statesman thinks about the next generation? And and I told them I've had occasion to explain this to my constituents, the difference. And I have really strived to fall into the ladder of statesman and do the right thing, not just because it might get me elected again, because but because it's the right thing to do. And when I when I first walked around knocking on doors, I told people what I stood for, and uh, and I've had the integrity to follow through. And I, and I hope that even even. Whether, they, whether my constituents agreed or disagreed with my votes, that, uh, that at least I have served them honorably and, 
and show them exactly what uh, what an elected official should look like. Why do you think some of these? Why do you think some some of these things are so hard? I mean, I'm still waiting to see a free speech protection bill advance through that if, that uh, addresses the problem on campus. Um, I can't even believe that Wisconsin didn't want to put school districts under a protective bubble by passing your privacy bill, uh, school privacy bill. And, and and instead of having individual school districts sued, have the attorney general protect those school districts and defend those school districts. Um, some of this stuff isn't even, like I said, it's boilerplate conservative stuff. It's not, you know, crazy right wing stuff. It's just routine conservative stuff. And it seems like we should be able to address it. I think I think part of the concern, Vicky, is obviously the leadership team. They need to come back with a number that can can make it make a change, make a difference. And we a lot of them do have to, for, for better or worse, look for look forward to the next election. But I, I think there are there are some things that are there are very common sense issues that just because I, I've heard the argument that just because the media is going to spin it one way, we can't talk about it. Well then let's get out there and let's make the media spin it another way. So, for instance, like the, like the school privacy bill. I started talking to folks. I said, do you know that this is the first time that we will actually address transgender in our statutes saying that school districts cannot, uh, cannot discriminate? They have to allow them someplace to change, someplace to use the restroom. A lot of people didn't understand that because the media had put out the mantra that, oh, Jesse Kramer just hates transgender people. Well, no, that's not, that's not the point. The point is I want to make sure that I wanted to make sure under that bill that the kids who, who um, you know, grew up as male or female are able to use, based on their anatomical body parts, the facilities that they should be allowed to use, but they shouldn't be required to change next to a kid with a different body part. But that kid should be allowed to go somewhere else and change that. Um, these are the things that I, I think messaging-wise, and we've heard that even with D.C. lately, the fact that we can't get our message out because the media takes that message away and, and, and turns it upside down on us. And I, I think we have to do a lot better job of that. And well, I, I think yes. that's part of the problem here. Part of the problem um, is instead of fearing the editorial pages, when I get out ahead, um, right. you know, your bill was a, I mean, that was a 80%, 90% slam dunk with Wisconsin parents, D- Democrat or Republican. It wasn't about, nobody was taking it as, oh, Jesse Kramer hates transgendered people. Um, but, but the Republican caucus reacted um, in an almost mocking way. I remember when you rolled out that bill, and I thought this is the perfect thing to do because if, in fact, the Obama administration is going to tee up DOJ to sue a school district into oblivion because school districts don't have the budgets to fight individually against the federal government, the state of Wisconsin instead would fight on behalf of a school district. I thought the same about about discipline policies and all kinds of other right. things. and. It was uh, no. Instead, I remember when the media decided to start mocking your bill. Republicans in the legislature made it seem like it was just such a oh, that's just Jesse going off the rails. No, it was actually a good bill. You talked to parents, you talked to teachers, you talked to administrators, you got buy-in from people on that bill, and instead, it was meted with derision. Well, it was was the right right thing to do. It was the opportunity. We had the opportunity. Now we don't anymore. And. I think it, we're going to see a lot more of these lawsuits down the road because what just happened in Kenosha with the, the huge settlements they paid out, they could have potentially been protected under this bill. And, uh, and so we had that opportunity. I, there are quite a few things that I, I, I still want to get done here. Um, campus free speech, you mentioned that. That is one of them. I, I want to see that done. I want to see the Senate get it done. I want to work with uh, whatever senators uh, uh, to get amendments on this bill to make it get it through this building because it really, is, it really does need to be accomplished. Uh, another one is the Heal Without Harm bill, which isn't my bill in particular, but um, 
when I when I when I address my colleagues, I said there's there's really two things that I feel that I have I have not been able to accomplish. One is the ability to to properly secure our classrooms with a true security that will deter mass maniacs. And the second one is the utter sense of helplessness and despair and not having had the ability to protect more of the members of our society who have no voice, the pre-born. And that Heal Without Harm bill that we've had for two sessions now, that we have not been able to get through this Republican legislature and this Republican governorship to prevent aborted babies from being sold, sliced, and diced to preserve our lives and make us live longer. Um, these are a couple of the things that, that really do bother me, yet that I really wish I could have accomplished. But uh, but we're not irreplaceable. I, we will find someone solid to, to fill my shoes. I, I'm certain. You know, I'm I, I I can't. I also just on the um on on the fetal tissue bill. I can't believe that has not moved. I mean, that is that is an awful condemnation of the commitment of the Republicans to life. Um, and right. as I think about the March for Life, which I just saw a time-lapse video of, which is truly in- incredible, um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people showing up with messages of hope and life and positive messages about healing, um, that and knowing that a, 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 a substantial majority of people actually support efforts to rein in Planned Parenthood or the Medical College of Wisconsin or the university research facilities from from trafficking in baby parts. Right. Um, I, I, I mean, to say that there's just no way to move that bill is a lie. And it's it's stuff like this that I'm going to tell you something in Senate District 10, where um, we just had a loss in a seat that was had been in Republican hands for, what, 16 years. Right. Um, part of what is driving a disinterest in Republicans is that that we're not doing these kinds of pieces of legislation on issues that absolutely affect people. Why do parents always feel like they can't speak up and defend their children against the, the indoctrination of white privilege and some of the unbelievably lecture, uh, unbelievable lecturing and hectoring they get, their kids get? Why do parents feel like they don't feel empowered to do that? Why does a school district feel like it has to flinch every time um, somebody threatens a federal lawsuit? Why does the, you know, the Milwaukee schools and the Madison schools, Racine schools, Verona, Madison, um, or or, uh, Middleton, why do they have to bend because the Obama administration issued a Dear Colleague letter and nobody's working on any of this stuff in the legislature? Why are we still sitting on a free speech bill when you've got conservative students and libertarian students and otherwise, you know, apolitical students being, you know, essentially treated like second class citizens on their own campus while they're forking out 15 grand a year to go there? Why doesn't that move the needle? Right. Well, Ronald Reagan summed it up. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. And, and, and that is true. Um, sadly, today, and I, I think many of our educational institutions have, whether intentionally or not, and I think a lot of it is intentionally, have are not only failing the students but if, who are the future of our society, but are, are really failing the teachers of their students. Because if they're not getting at college, these, these future teachers, the background, the actual historical and fundamental context of our nation's founding and our heritage, it's not getting passed down. And the parents don't know because they're not getting it in school. And, and I think it's just, it's just our society is crumbling, and a lot of, a lot of us need to get back to, uh, to educating. And, and this, I addressed my kids today and my wife. And um, my goal, I never, I never expected to be here, and I really never sh- probably should have been here. I, I didn't have the money to run uh, a solid campaign. I was outspent two to one uh, by a number of the people I ran against. And, but, but it happened, and, and my goal was to at least, if it didn't happen, if I didn't get here, which I didn't expect, that my kids would see how the process works. 
and my kids would understand what this country really stands for. And I, and I hope I've impressed that on them. And I've hope, I hope when I go around talking to churches and school groups that, that I'm able to impress that on, on all of them also in, in the future. And uh, um, I really have, it really has been a privilege and an honor to serve the state of Wisconsin and my constituents. I think you've done great work, and I, I really do. I think a lot of people out there appreciate the work you've done, Jesse. And, um, you know, I, I think they're disappointed that some of the things that we we're talking about can't even seem to make it beyond a committee vote, sometimes can't even get out of committee, never mind making it to the full floor. I think they're frustrated, too. Um, and I hope the Republicans in general are taking some notes here. Uh, you got to give Republicans something to fight for fight for something and they need to also be able to fight against something and 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 I mean, just the, a few pieces of legislation we have talked about are the kinds of things that Republicans would love to just dig in and fight for. And, and I'll tell you something. That's good policy making good politics. I don't know who said that. Maybe it was Ronald Reagan. Um, but, if, but if you give them good policy, the Republicans ought to be able to make the politics work, too. You know? Right. And all of the stuff we've been talking about is good policy. Hey, Jesse, thank you for the, the work you've done. And um, hopefully before you, you know, finally retire, uh, I have a chance to have you back on the show a couple more times. Thank you, Vicki. I really appreciate it. Got to take a break here. That was State Representative Jesse Kramer. We'll be right back. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.